Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Does anyone like to run in the, this congregation? Jess is like, no. Any runners? Ash, Debbie, I know, is a keen runner. Any other runners? Matt? No. I don't know if I've told you before, but I'm actually identifying as a runner these days. It's true. My mum has bought me the most fancy running trainers. I have all the gear and no idea. I like to go out running and I, I'm worried sometimes I talk about running more than I do Jesus now. So I have to really recalibrate. I'm one of those annoying people who will bore you about running because I've now discovered it at the age of 40. I never thought I would be a runner. I always thought I hated runner. runner. I never liked it. I always just did weights when I went to the gym and now I'm a converted runner and I like to run down along the river from Putney Bridge to Hammersmith Bridge I kind of just do this little loop and I, and I realized some, something something happened in my brain as I began to get better at running and by better sometimes I catch myself you know I think I'm like Mo Farah like these like vain thoughts of like maybe I am actually really good at this and I catch myself in the in like reflection of a and I'm just like this slow chugging mess going down the river um, but I, this, this, I realised there was something beginning to happen in my heart and it's confession time that not only was I like enjoying running but I was enjoying the fact that I was running and other people were only walking. <laughs> Any runners know this feeling? Anyone been a run? And I realised I was beginning to look down on those who were just walking. I was like, and I realised I was crossing Hammersmith Bridge one, one time and I was coming up behind this guy and it's very tight at the moment. So I had to like go and I was looking at him and this thought popped into my head from nowhere. Look at this guy only walking. And I was like, and look at me running straight past him. And I was like, I was in, in my head, all this stuff. I was so embarrassed in myself like I am still a six-year-old kid trying to show off to the world like look at me I can run I can do this and I mean if someone else goes past me which they often do in their running and I feel utterly depressed but I run past a walker and I'm like full of like look at me and I realized I'm not just running for the joy of running there is something in me that like likes running like in comparison uh, is anyone ash is like giving me a little nod debbie's like i don't know what you're talking about i just run for the pleasure of running but it's like i'm i mean i associate boasting with like primary school playgrounds right I, like oh my dad does this or my tv is 26 or 48 or whatever it might be and yet still as a 40 year old grown man i can't just go running and just enjoy the running my heart is still trying to find ways of boasting right anyone and I, th- I think honestly we all do it like as adults we learn to be much more subtle and under the surface right because we realize no one likes a boaster but still in our hearts we are we like to kind of reassure ourselves that we are something in the world by like just various different things like I'm doing quite well at this if people knew this or look I've got this many people in my team now that person's only got that many people in their team look at my income now compared to that person look at my position now we don't say these things out loud but there are these little things that we ruminate on just to massage ourselves and make us feel slightly better reassure ourselves is anyone with me we, we, 
I, no. <laughs> yeah. And we're actually, we, we are trained as a, as a society to find stuff in our own heart to boast in. We don't say it like this, but everything, every inspirational thing and quote and Instagram that we find now is like, you, you get after it. You've got what you need. You don't need them. You can do this. You wake up early. You work hard. You believe. You can get this. You achieve. Because we assume that it's in us, right? So we get to the end. And if we do manage to get that thing, what happens is, I, I did it. This whole self-esteem movement that we have today has, has given us language and a framework for how we understand our emotions which is essentially based on we need to find a boast in ourselves you have good self-esteem or you have low self-esteem the bible has no such categories no no such framework but this secular language we have placed over our emotions to say low self-esteem we think so just it feels like a humble position but actually low self-esteem is the fact that i've looked in my heart my life my accomplishments to try and find some boast I'm struggling at the moment. At the moment, my self-esteem is quite good, which means I found some things to boast in and actually I can walk upright and confident into work tomorrow. Does it make sense? We're, we're actually still trying to find a reason to boast about my, my own life. And so whether we feel confident and we're actually boasting out loud or we're actually feeling underconfident and we'd really rather attract from life, either way is this us trying to find some esteem in us, some boasting in us. And when we place that onto God, it can be really toxic. When I, when I became a Christian at 17, or I started following Christ at 17, actively, I was so grateful to Jesus and I was so inspired by Jesus. I wanted to give everything to Jesus that I just rearranged my whole life around Jesus. I wanted to live only for him. And so I read about other people who lived only for Jesus. And I read about their, their Bible reading habits and their prayer habits and their fasting habits and their getting up habits. And, and so I started to try and follow them. And I thought, I've got to do some things for Christ now. He's done so much for me. So I would go after him. I would wake up early. I would read as many chapters and pray as much. And I realized as years went on, my days would like go rapidly from like feeling really good or like crushed and depressed. And I'd have this like yo-yo existence of like feeling great, feeling bad, feeling based on whether I'd read my Bible, whether I'd prayed, whether I felt I had matched up to this kind of Christian ideal of what it meant to be a Jesus follower. So some days I would go to uni and I'd feel like so confident, like swaggering into uni, like I've done it. I've read four chapters today. I wouldn't tell anyone because I'm an introvert really, but I'd like ruminate in my own head, like doing quite well jesus i really prayed like i was on my knees for a solid like three and a half minutes today like i'm really and whatever it I, and if i woke up late or whatever like i would feel honestly crushed i wouldn't want to like really chat i wouldn't want to i'd be desperate with god like how could he love me why because i was taking this boasting and placing it into a spiritual context saying what is there in me that god would would like I think we can all do this. We all can look into our own selves and it's not a good place to be. It's a vulnerable, it's a joyless, it's a heavy place to be if we're trying to look to ourselves for boasting. 
I want to take us to a brand new place, I'm praying. A place where Paul takes us. Because in this passage that Janine read for us, he tries to take us from this place where we boast in ourselves to a place where we will boast in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So he says this in verse 29. He says, all of this passage is for this reason, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that's the negative, but the positive is this of this passage, so that as it is written, and he quotes Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And it's interesting because Paul and Jeremiah, when they quote these passages, there is this assumption that all the time we will boast as people. Like we, have to, we have to find a reassurance, a comfort in this life. We cannot but boast, find something to cling on to. And so what Paul is doing is trying to shepherd us away from boasting in ourselves to find our boast only in Jesus Christ. To stop thinking with secular categories of low self-esteem or high self-esteem or I can do this or whatever, but to take our gaze and look on Jesus and find our boast 100% in him. Because I think a lot of people today are, are quite confused because I think we, we struggle with this thing because we feel like I'm not supposed to be arrogant. Like everyone knows that. It's not just a Christian thing. Like no one likes the proud, boastful, arrogant person, right? So we know that, but we're equally trained that you've got to do things you've got to find. So what happens when things go well for you? Ever wondered that? Like, okay, I, what, do you, what do I do when I'm actually quite good at something? I can really do this thing quite well. Like how, how do I process that? And we struggle with it because we're still trying to find something in here. There is a whole new way to look at this. So what I want to do is, as it were, I, I want to take every, and this sounds really contrary, so you might think, well, just bear with me. I want to take every like, grain of self-power, of self-esteem, of self-will, of self-wisdom out of our hearts today. Not, not some of it. My aim with the Holy Spirit is that every single grain of self-will and self-esteem and self-power will be taken out of our hearts. So that we might find true and full joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul does this funny thing in this passage because he, he goes at this by really taking us to reflect on who we are as Christians. And he's almost prosecuting illegal emotions in the presence of God. Anything that is not warranted in the presence of God, he's going after and prosecuting. Saying that's not allowed. That is not allowed. There is something far better than trying to find something in here. And it's in Jesus Christ. So my prayer is we're going to close with in Christ alone at the end. As this declaration, my prayer is that we will be singing, praising, boasting in Jesus. Amen. Okay. The, the, the core of this passage is, is this, this two word phrase that comes three times. God chose. Paul says this. He says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose 
what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. And this whole idea that God chooses his people is the foundation and the backbone on which he builds this boasting in God. And he goes after this idea by focusing on us. And really there's, there's two ways that we can understand this theologically. The first is this, we understand that God chose us by thinking God simply chose us because he chose us, because he chose us, because he chose us. Like the only reason why he did it, because his will decided in love to save us and to choose us unto himself. The only other way we can understand this is to think that God, before the foundation of the world, looked into human history and he saw those who would put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. And he looked at those who would say yes to Jesus. And he said, yes, I will choose these people to be my own. And what the scriptures say and what this passage says is that God chooses us because he chooses us and there's nothing in us that made us choose him bear with me while i open a little theological can of worms there are four ways that he goes after this this is the first way he says this is it's it, we know this because it's based on the nature of the church because he says it's consider your calling not many of you are wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful and not many were of noble or of of good birth that the church itself was not made up of the cleverest the smartest the richest the most able if you were starting up a company today you, you would probably think about going down some kind of influencers like marketing strategy right you know everyone wants their stuff to be like seen on the Kardashians Instagram page. Well, it's not called a page. I know it's not. I really, but whatever. It, you know, Gymshark is a perfect example. How did they get their business to be like gazillion billion pounds worth? Is that they just sent their new stuff to some influencers just to wear? Because it's based on this. If you want to get the message out, right, you give it to those who are like the most attractive, the most buff, the most wealthy, the most millions of followers on their Instagram. And then people say, this is glamorous. I want to follow this. How does God get his message out? He doesn't say, I want to call the richest and the most attractive and the most well-connected people. And I want to give them the gospel. And everyone will say, this is what I've got to be involved in right now. He says, I want to gather those who don't have, those who didn't have a birth that gave them privileges those who aren't wise according to the words I want to give the gospel to them so that people might know that this is based on my glory and not on their glory amen it's 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 an upside down way of viewing the world and so this church here in Corinth and the church in London the church of Jesus Christ is to reflect the way in which God saves this passage that we're reading now really sits in the shadow of 118 to 25 which is exalting the cross of jesus christ that says that the cross that the way god saves his people is both foolish and weak that people look at that and say, that is the salvation of the world a man dying on a cross so the church is to live in the same way that we are to reflect foolishness and weakness because it's not us 
who saved ourselves it's this God who saves like this and the church just simply reflect reflects the cross of Jesus Christ people say the cross people look at the church and the church that that is the center of the universe you're saying that like a hundred people in Waterloo you're you are like access to all power almighty God say yeah one one um, I, I read this there was a, a critic of the church a few a few years after Paul wrote this letter. He was like the Richard Dawkins of his day. He was a man called Celsus. And uh, he, he wrote this about the church. And uh, it just made me laugh out loud. So I hope it doesn't offend you if you're a Christian. Because I've never been described like he described. He, he really didn't like the church. But the reason he didn't like the church, it was because it was made up of people who weren't the seemingly important people. And yet made great claims to being those who would inherit the earth. And he hated the church. He says, we see them in their own houses, wool dressers, cobblers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests. And this is what made me laugh literally out loud in my study. Or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp. I was like, what a description. I've never been described like a frog holding a religious meeting around a muddy swamp. That's who we are, church. Welcome. Or worms in a religious meeting in a corner of mud. (laughs) I was like, wow, this is what he looked at the church. He says a symposium of frogs gathered around a swamp singing praises to Jesus. Nothing in us. Why? Because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus Christ. Who does God choose? He doesn't call the influences of the world to come. He calls those who don't have influence, don't have access, don't have privilege, don't have money. He says, come into my kingdom. I'm going to turn the world up upside down and you are going to inherit the earth in my son's name amen this is the glory of the kingdom but it gets better because there's something else he says he doesn't say it's just for those who don't have because that could actually be a heavy thing because what if you do have a good job and what if you did go to university and what if your parents did give you a, a leg up in life what what for those the good news is this he says this it's not many of you who are wise. So in this church that was made up of Corinthians, who was a stratified society of those who really had and those who really had not, he says mainly it's made up of people who have not, but there are some in this church who have. So you have the very wealthy getting saved, saying yes to Jesus, coming to church on a Sunday, and you have the very poor getting saved and coming to Jesus and coming to church on a Sunday, and they are both the only place where they gather around one common cause is in Jesus Christ's name to give glory to Jesus, which tells us this, something infinitely hopeful about everybody, that your background does not qualify you. God qualifies you for his kingdom amen you can have access you can be well connected you could have a good family upbringing that does not qualify you for kingdom access you could have nothing in life you could start with nothing you could end with nothing that doesn't qualify you either god qualifies us for his kingdom amen which means for us we we need to be careful that we really do reflect this that God chose us sometimes churches we can get caught up with this idea that we have to kind of play the world's games like we have to look 
like the influencers. We have to look like we've got social power. We have to kind of present that we have something that the world likes. But actually, God says that the kingdom is totally upside down and the church is full of foolishness and weakness. We're the frogs of London. Hallelujah. And so we display the weakness of God. We don't come to demonstrate that we've got something that the world... No, no, we've got something utterly foolish to the world. We've got Jesus Christ, a man who was crucified on a cross. The salvation of the world. Amen. So firstly, he says that nothing qualifies you, not whether you've got access or no access or money or no money. And then he says this, and it gets even better. And this is where he really begins to prosecute emotions. He says this in verse 28. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, even things that are not. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you can't have a thing that is a nothing. He's trying to get across the fact that God is drawn to where there is spiritual emptiness thirst where there is nothing and an admission of nothing god is drawn he's not drawn to those who say doing quite well at the moment i actually know the bible quite well i'm not sure i need to know too much i can pray god's not drawn to that attitude he's drawn to the attitude where like, in my heart there's nothing here charles read that passage from john 7 those who thirst uh, there's, there's no there's no nothing here I, I thirst for something beyond me god is drawn here he saves those who have nothing in their life no, no spark of goodness no, no moral willpower no spark of faith it's not looking into the future saying you've got a grain of something that i need on my team i'll take you no, he says i'm drawn to where there's nothing and I'll take you into myself. Let me go at it like this. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian here today, you're so welcome. We hope you find Jesus and the life that he brings. But if you're a Christian here today, why are you a Christian? No rhetorical answers, Marcia. <laughs> why are you a Christian? Let me just work through some of how you could argue. You could argue, well, I, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church. I mean, the slam dunk argument today is I identify as a Christian. So how you dare, even dare ask me like, if I'm, I identify like that? So I just am. But why? If you do identify as a Christian, why do you identify? What makes you a Christian? And you might say, well, I, I made a decision at a particular moment in a meeting. Okay, so why did you make that decision? Or maybe the preacher was really good and convincing. You were persuaded. Okay, so why were you persuaded in that moment? Because uh, I realized that Jesus was, or why did you realize that the Jesus was the son of God? You realize, you see where I'm going? If you keep asking why, and you keep asking why, at some point, there are only two possible answers. Either there was something in you that you chose, you put your faith, you decided, you had some willpower, which means even by the tiniest amount, you feel like you might be a bit better than your friends who didn't say yes to Jesus. 
Why didn't they? Because they didn't have that little spark of faith, that little spark of goodness. They, they didn't have the persuaded mind to see that this is really... Or we simply say, God chose me. It was God. There was nothing in me but God chose me. I have nothing. That moment when I was 17 reading Gospel of Mark, it wasn't like I've got something that I can bring to this. I look back, God chose me. God opened my eyes. God rescued me. God redeemed me. He became my wisdom, my sanctification, my righteousness. He became my everything. What Paul is saying is that everything that we have is because of Christ and nothing in us. And some of us will say, well, what about faith? Which is a really good question. Don't we have to put faith on the table for God to come and save us? Paul prosecutes that in Ephesians 2.8 and he says, we have been saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing, church. This, this is the gift of God. Even the faith that we have to believe in Jesus is given to us by Christ Jesus when we get saved. Which means there is not one scrap of morality, faith, anything in us that we can boast in before God because it's all of him, amen? Which is actually the happiest place to be. Because I don't have to worry about moral performance, spiritual performance, how have I been this week or not. It's all of him. I keep my eyes on Jesus Christ, which means everyone is welcome. There's abounding hope with this knowledge that God chooses, because you could come from any background and you can receive the infinite inheritance in Jesus Christ. You could feel like you've got a lot of willpower or no willpower. You can come to Jesus Christ. Some people say, oh, I wish I had your faith. Anyone ever told you that if you're a Christian? It feels to happen less and less these days. But a few years ago, people say, oh, I wish I had your faith. Like the, the wrong answer as a Christian is like, well, thank you very much. It is quite good, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's not the answer. The answer is God chose me. You can receive Jesus Christ. It's nothing about my willpower. All glory be to him, amen. And then he closes by saying this by making this point that all of the the riches that we get as christians is because we were placed into jesus christ he says in verse 30 and because of him you are in christ jesus so because of god the father god the father takes us in our sin and he places us in jesus christ his son so that everything that Jesus is now becomes ours. The inheritance that Jesus is to receive on the final day is ours in equal part. We are co-inheritors with Jesus Christ. It's an outstanding truth. But he says, God placed you in Jesus Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everything that we have is because of Christ not because of me. So Christ, he becomes our wisdom as a church. We go to him and we have access to this infinite storehouse of wisdom in the light of the presence of Jesus Christ. He pours out blessing and wisdom over us. When we come to him, James 1, without doubting, he gives it to us. 
We get sanctified. We get drawn apart into this family of God and have this position now with brothers and sisters and the Father in heaven who watches over me. Why? Because of Jesus. I have righteousness in this life. I can stand tall and wake up in the morning and walk confidently through life, not because I found anything in me, but because I found infinite worth in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is sat at the right hand of the Father and he is my eternal righteousness. So I boast in him. Nothing can touch my righteousness, nor my good works, nor my bad works, nor my bad days, nor my good days. My righteousness is kept safe before the Father. So I'm free. I don't have to worry in the mornings like, ah, oh, am I feeling good? Can I do it? I, was yesterday good? What's going on in my heart? No, I look up and see, gee, it's my righteousness today. I'm going confidently into the world. And he says he is our redemption. We've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm a purchased one. The catechism says, what is my comfort in life and death? that I'm not my own anymore. I don't belong to myself. I don't need to, I, I don't belong to myself. That in body and in soul, in life and in death, I belong to my faithful Jesus, Saviour Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all my sins. He's done it. So I look up to him. He is my redemption. He is my boast. Everything I have in life, all fingers point to Jesus. Amen. So what do we have in ourselves? Nothing. Nada. Is that part Portuguese? <laughs> all the zeros, all the nothings in any language you can think about, there is nothing. And I, I, I want us to be persuaded that to have this view of ourselves is actually the most hopeful, the happiest place to be in. It takes all the pressure off us. We fix our eyes solely on, on Jesus. You see how radically God-centred this way of living is. Paul says, God chose. So it was his will to choose me. I had nothing to do with it. I was walking away from God. He chose me. God chose me. He says, God called us. It was God's calling. God placed us into Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ may get all the glory in this life. So you see, God is the starter. He is the sustainer. He is the end of all things. We are revolving around him, not about us. This is why we have as our vision statement to see the glory of God known across London and the nations. Not look at us. We're doing quite well. And God helped us out because we prayed and look at our life. We're really flowing so well and whatever it might be. No our desire to see the glory of God he is our all in all he is our everything so we boast in glory in, in him alone so it has very practical applications what, what do you do when you, you sin in life which you will sadly we will I will I hate the fact that we will but we will sin in this life what, what do we do when those moments when you find yourself grieving and troubled and depressed over your sin the temptation is to think I've got, I've, got to, I've got to buckle down. Like, if God's going to happen, I've, I've got to do some things now. I've got to show God that I really am committed to him. So you double down on your plans, right? I read extra chapters. I make sure I read. I make sure I go to community group now. I really make an effort to be there on church because I've, I've got to get back on track, right? Which basically is saying, it's me. Like, I failed, so I've got to pick myself back up again. And you put this weight on. You sin. Uh, that wasn't good. I put more weight on my shoulders to try and get back on track. Or if you feel like you've been spiritually lax for a while, and you're like, ah, 
2023 this is this is the i am gonna smash it spiritually i've got big goals i'm gonna really get on track and so even to have this pastoral framework where you think i'm on track or off track i'm i mean it's still based on this idea that it's it's within me right it's within my power to get on the track or off the track the the hymn writer my favorite hymn uh, before the throne of god above We'd sing that every week if I had my way, but I don't have my way, which is a very good thing. What happens when Satan tempts us to despair and tells me of my guilt within? I think, okay, yeah, I am guilty. Uh, better find a new book to read and make sure I get to group. And No, upward I look. Upward I look and see him there. He who made an end to all my sin. Sounds simple, but it's life-changing. If I look inside myself, I will only find despair, vulnerability, insecurity, because there'll always be someone who's running faster than me, which is really annoying. <laughs> I think sometimes Sundays can feel like a very, a very vulnerable time I know this from my own experience because during the week, right, I think we, 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 can, we can bury how we feel spiritually because there's so much to get done, right? You've got to be up early. There's work, there's emails, there's meetings, there's lunches, there's people, there's stuff just to get done. And, and what can happen is, sure, you might be walking with Jesus and you love him and you make it to meetings, but you can bury how you're actually feeling and doing inside because it's just busy. And I think sometimes Sundays can feel like a revealing, an uncomfortable time. Because it's a moment where we stop and we realise, like, where am I finding my reassurance in life? Anyone feel like that? You're like you've been busy flat out all week and you get to church and suddenly you're in worship and you feel very, very vulnerable. Oh, you stop and think about how you're doing. Anyone do that? And no one wants to confess to this one. <laughs> you feel applications coming on. I don't want to go there. I think we do. I think sometimes we struggle to enter into worship fully because we, we, we're just thinking about what have I got to put on the table with God? How, how have I done this week? How am I going to do? Do I have the willpower? Do I have the strength? I'm, I'm looking inside. We struggle to really go in for God because we, we're still trying to find boasts in here. But Paul says, let no one boast in themselves, but may your eyes be fixed on Jesus and boast in him and in him alone. Amen. Amen.